0: Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast taking hot girl summer literally. Today we have Kellen
1: and Ambria and for the
0: second week in a row, SOTB is talking climate. Last week, we talked policy, and today we're talking science, and specifically, we'll be discussing sea levels. The world is warming, ice is melting, and our lived geography is changing. Here to talk us through all of that is a scientist and friend of the pod. You may remember her from our Feminists of the Animal Kingdom episode, but her (laughs) real specialty is geology, but also feminism, so she was qualified for that too. Um, Welcome back, Tamara. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Hi, yes. Um, I can't say I was really qualified for the (laughs) Feminists of the Animal Kingdom episode, uh, but we pulled out some fun facts. (laughs) Uh, So thanks so much for having me again. I'm really excited to talk about sea level today. Uh, So my name is Tamara Pico, and I study uh, how ice sheets have changed over the last ice age. And I'll get into some of this later, but what I do in my research is I model how the earth deforms over a glacial cycle in response to loads of ice sheets in order to understand how sea level would have changed around the world. And so I just finished uh, my PhD and graduated from the earth science department at Harvard, uh, but I also did a secondary field in women, gender, and sexuality studies. And in that field of my research, what I'm really focused on is social issues within the geosciences and also in the broader scientific community.
0: Yes. So we're, I think in this episode, going to try to get into sort of two different aspects of sea level rise um, that comes along with climate change. In the first section, Tamara is going to talk a little bit about the science, um, which is really interesting. And I can say this because I attended her dissertation. <laughs> defense. She had some sections that were specifically for me, Basically, being the only person in the audience that didn't know what was going on, there were visuals. She had a mattress analogy. Like she's like, okay, for the one dumb person sitting through this, here's how it works. (laughs) And I was like, we gotta get her on the pod. She's gotta explain this to the world. It's interesting. so we're going to talk some about the science behind sea level rise and then also talk about sort of as Tamara alluded to some of the social consequences of sea level rise. And one of the reasons that I think Tamara is such a great scientist is that she's really focused not just on, you know, the the chemistry and the physics of what's happening um, on the Earth, but also how it affects the people living on the planet. Um so with that being said, Tamara, could you talk a little bit about that science behind sea level rise? It's like, it's a little more complicated than some people <laughs> realize.
2: Yeah, of course. Thanks, And thanks, Kellen, for sitting through the whole hour and 20 minutes of my defense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so
2: over, over the last about 20 years, global sea level is estimated to have increased at a rate of three millimeters per year. And so that's an acceleration from the rate during the 20th, 20th, 20th century, sorry. <laughs> uh, the, and the rate then was about 1.2 millimeters per year. And so often when people talk about sea level rise, they're talking about a global sea level rise. So some uniform shift in the ocean's height. And this can be controlled by number of variables. So one reason that sea level is rising globally is that oceans are warming as the air in the atmosphere above it warms. And this actually causes a density change in the ocean, increasing ocean volumes in what's termed thermal expansion. And sea level can also rise because ice is melting and we're putting more water into the oceans. And so while we know that mountain glaciers around the world are retreating really rapidly, they actually don't contribute a lot to global sea level rise because there's just not that much ice volume in these glaciers.
0: So Tamir, can I, um, can I clarify something real fast? Yeah. So we have the the ice melting, raising the sea level, that probably makes sense to people. Um, uh, but I with the, the heat thing that you're talking about, is that like, because as molecules, when they're heating up, they start moving faster and they're taking up more space.
2: Um, I think it's more related to the density of salt water at different temperatures, which is probably related in some way to kinetic energy, but I'm not actually sure.
0: That was a very polite way of telling (laughs) me that I was wrong. Please continue.
1: (laughs) Wait, wait. So just to get this straight, you're saying that uh, the ice and the glaciers melting and stuff, is less of a big deal because they contribute to rising sea levels, but more of a big deal because they indicate something about warming. Uh,
2: So, so I, so well, actually, the next thing I was going to talk about is ice sheets. What I was going to say is is that melting ice from glaciers is really not as important as melting ice from ice sheets in terms of raising sea level. But yeah, but melting mountain glaciers definitely is telling you that, something is warming around mm-hmm. them. But <laughs> so we got but, um, glaciers
1: and we got ice sheets and those are different yes. things. What is a the difference? difference? Okay. So,
2: well, well, there are glaciers on ice sheets. Mm-hmm. This is actually something I've always kind of struggled what? with is what's actually <laughs> the definition of a glacier. Basically, an ice sheet is like an enormous glacier or like composed of many, many glaciers. Oh. Um, and uh, But any any body of ice that flows... Is a glacier. So, so little, even little ice caps that you see on top of a mountain, you could kind of call that a glacier. Oh. Um, although I'm, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you should listen to me for definition of <laughs> glacier versus ice sheets. But basically, ice sheets are massive. Okay. They're really thick. Like they're more. They're well, Greenland and Antarctica, their thickest is more than three kilometers thick. So mm. it's just enormous and and so the scale of mountain glaciers in comparison to those ice sheets is just really really small like if all the mountain glaciers in the world melted it would raise sea level by like maybe less than a meter oh wow i don't hopefully i'm not getting this number wrong but if you melted like greenland has i think 20 meters of ice and antarctica has 60 so that's the amount of water that's locked in the ice and the ice sheets is just so much more.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Please continue.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So what I was going to say is that melting from ice sheets like Greenland and Antarctica is what really dominates global sea level rise. Uh, And we can estimate how much ice is melting in Greenland or Antarctica by a few different methods. And so uh, for one, it's possible to compare the rates of glacier outflow to snow accumulation, but I think what are considered more precise methods are by measuring elevation changes on the ice sheet and also measuring gravity changes, and those are both done by satellites.
1: Okay, and wait so, Yeah. Oh, wait, you're, you're maybe, I'm sorry, I'm going to let you continue and then see if you answer my question. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um,
2: We're just so
0: eager, Tamara. We
2: want to no, learn. <laughs> oh, no. no, ask the question because I think it's more interesting if it's interactive, well say okay.
1: more. Sorry, say it again. Yeah. I was just like, gravity changes. <laughs> yeah. What is that and how would you measure it?
2: Um yeah, well so there so the Earth has an associated gravitational field. Um, and uh, and changes in mass on the earth change the gravitational field so the gravitational field isn't uniform around the whole world there is um changes in its elevation and that's due to mass changes on the earth um and so yeah it's kind of an aside but uh a lot of times we talk about gravity anomalies so those are places where the gravity field kind of dips or um gets pushed up and um and often that has to do with um with some change in the Earth's mantle. So that maybe there's a a hotter part of the mantle or a colder part that's moving through the mantle and it hasn't moved to where it's gonna be in equilibrium yet. And so that'll change the gravitational field. But in this case, um, it's from melting ice mass. And so the idea is, well, you're able to interpret a change in mass, so a volume of ice from changes in the gravitational field. Um, oh over Antarctica gosh. or Greenland.
1: Wow. I am learning so much already. My, <laughs> my brain is like pew, 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 pew. It's feeling hot in there, you know? Talk girl summer guys. <laughs> I'm having some climate change in my brain. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And it's being caused by one particular human. Oh. <laughs> well, okay, I'm glad you
2: guys like gravity. It's usually <laughs> not students' favorite subject. Um,
1: gravity is one of my favorite subjects ever, but we're not going to get into that right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, so um, so all the things that I've talked about so far are about how global sea level is rising. Uh, but different regions around the world can experience very different local sea level changes. And you see that in measurements. So this is um, my people... favorite
0: part. This is the part of your <laughs> dissertation defense I was most excited about. Because in my head, I was like, uh, the sea level, obviously, when the sea level goes up, it goes up the same everywhere where there's the ocean, you know? Turns out, I was wrong. I was an absolute <laughs> idiot, and Tamra had a whole demonstration just to explain
1: <laughs> it to me. <laughs> um, uh, Tamara, have you ever yeah. given, like, a science talk where people interrupt you to, like, cheerlead you? Like, <laughs> yeah, that part was awesome.
0: <laughs> If you haven't, you're doing it you now. You guys should come to my next talk.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell us about um, how sea level yeah. can be different in different places, C- different sea level
1: so, rises.
2: And, and so this is something that's actually recorded over the last century or so. So in um, places around the world, people put these things out called tide gauges, and they're basically just like a measurement stick in the ocean to measure how sea level is changing. And um, in some places sea level is rising much faster sea levels rising slower or in some places sea levels actually falling and so um so i study uh in my research is a process called glacial isostatic adjustment and i alluded to this a bit in the intro so uh so this refers to how the solid earth responds to changing loads of ice sheets so i said that ice sheets are so big right that they can be more than three kilometers thick. And so that means they're a really heavy load. And so this is where the, the mattress analogy comes in, <laughs> is that um, even though the earth is solid on, on long time scales, the inside of the earth or the earth's mantle actually flows. Uh, and that's why we have plate tectonics. And so um, when an ice sheet, so sorry, so we can think of the earth um, kind of as, as something squishy, so it's solid, um, but it can squish. So we, in my field, we call this a viscoelastic solid. So one example would be uh, a foam mattress. I also like using a bread dough analogy. So if you put something heavy on it, um, like a some kind of weight, the weight is going to sink into the bread dough, so you're going to punch it down. Uh, but then when you remove the punch, the bread dough will rise back up and and fill that space. And so the earth is kind of like that. So over a glacial cycle, you're punching it down with these really heavy ice sheets. And then when the ice sheets melt, the earth is bouncing back up. Uh, And so because of this process, that means that local sea level is really different all around the world. So for example, if you were somewhere that used to be under an ice sheet, when the ice sheet was there, you were pressed down a lot, and that means sea level was higher where you were um, in the past. But today, that land is rebounding. So over much of Canada, the land is actually rebounding, and that means that local sea level is falling. Um, and so uh, so this is kind of one way that regional sea level can be really different in different places. Uh, and it's actually a big uncertainty on knowing how much ice has melted so when we were talking about those gravity measurements i said that it can also sense how mass has changed inside the earth and the mantle and so if we if we don't know how much the land surface has changed because of this process of the solid earth rebounding like if we get the the bottom surface wrong then we also got the top surface wrong so actually a big uncertainty on on how much ice is melting in antarctica is not really understanding how the land surface has changed in response to this this process um uh, but there are other things that that change local sea level um so for example coastal processes like if you're at a delta just the fact that you're putting sediment in is changing sea level locally um earthquake could change sea level too because you just Change the vertical elevation quickly, uh, and and another reason that sea level is very different in different places is is ocean currents because surface winds will kind of move water to be higher in some places and lower in other places.
0: This is so wild. I again, <laughs> what I I felt bad for everybody else at this dissertation defense because I was losing my mind and they were all like, "Yeah, we know." Um, <laughs> But one of the cool things about Tamara's research is that um, she's doing a lot of really important work to uh, help us understand what places used to look like so that we have a better sense of how things are changing now. Like, if you don't know, like Tamara was saying, you know, what the bread dough used to look like before there was this weight or when there was this weight, when the weight is lifted and the ice starts to melt and the earth is springing back up, it's harder to know just how much it's changing so anyway really I'm interesting so proud stuff.
2: Kellen you got, <laughs> you got so much out of it
0: <laughs> yeah um, is there anything else you want to tell us about like this, this science of sea level rise
2: yeah I guess I was, I was just going to say a little bit about uh, so one of the things people ask when we talk about sea level rise today is like well isn't that normal there's a glacial cycle so isn't it normal that sea level rises and then it falls that's part of the cycle um, and so um, I thought I could just touch a bit on um, like where we are compared yeah. to what a normal glacial cycle would be like Sorry, I'm gonna do a really quick explanation of, of how ice ages work. That's, so
1: yeah, um, I'm sure that would be helpful for a lot of us. <laughs> Why okay would you apologize for that. <laughs> Uh, hello, I know all about ice ages. Don't <laughs> waste your breath on me. Yeah, that's brag
0: But I did see not just the first ice age movie, but the second one too. <laughs> um, so I know a lot about uh, woolly Mammoth and Ray Romano. I know is all about that little. That's my
2: first slide when I give talks to middle schoolers. I have the ice age cover, and they're all so excited. And then I get to the next slide. That's the mattress picture, and then they're they're done. <laughs>
1: um please let me know if you ever come to Chicago and you can give a talk to my middle oh oh that would be awesome (laughs) so uh
2: so glacial cycles last about 100,000 years at least in the last million years they have that's another story about why why do they last 100,000 years um but people think that glacial cycles are controlled by changes in orbital configuration. So basically the earth, we know the earth is at a certain tilt towards the sun and it's a certain distance from the sun. But over time that distance changes slightly and the tilt changes slightly. And that means that it changes the amount of solar radiation that the earth receives. And, and that, would then change the uh, CO2 that gets kept in the atmosphere. So that can warm or cool the planet. And that's what's thought to have paced um, sheet growth or melt. And so at the last interglacial, so the last time that we were at a similar uh, warm time like today, um, that was about 120,000 years ago. CO2 levels were um, pre-industri basically at the same values of pre-industrial, so before 1830 about, and um, and sea levels thought to have been six to nine meters higher. And so uh, that means that even if we had stayed at CO2 pre-industrial level, pre- sorry, CO2 levels of a pre-industrial age, then we're likely going to see sea level rising to be at least six to nine meters higher than today, Uh, but we've actually increased CO2 significantly since then. So we're probably heading to even more melt than that, Uh, although this is more on a thousand year timescale. So this isn't on, you know, the next hundred years, but it's kind of ultimately where the ice sheets might be heading.
1: Um,
0: so we'll cut out the little pause. I don't want to.
1: Yeah, I I didn't want to like cut in before you we were <laughs> ready. Uh, Laura, edit this part out. <laughs> um. So something that kind of blows my mind uh, in doing some of the prepping for this, I I was uh, cheating and like reading some stuff. Um. And I was I was struck by how capitalism's exploitation of and disregard for environmental resources. Um, hasn't only caused climate change, but it creates all these other kinds of problems that make the damage from climate change even more destructive. So I'm thinking of like areas with rising waters, also dealing with like oil spills at the same time. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, can you talk about the sort of I like one-two punch that is being dealt uh, to the most vulnerable areas right now, and why like a whole myriad of things seems to be happening? Like, it, it seems like if one place is really suffering from uh, the effects of climate change, they're also suffering from, like, a bunch of other environmental problems.
2: Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about the sea level part of it. <laughs> so, so, So what you mentioned just now, to me, is kind of an example of how humans... Also, cause a local sea level change. So, in this case, the oil industry is building pipelines or cutting canals in regions like coastal Louisiana, and that can exacerbate local subsidence. So that's causing even more sea level rise um, because they are putting their industry in. So on top of that, um, that's in this is an area where local sea level, has already been altered by human interventions. So damming of the Mississippi means that the Mississippi Delta is starved of sediment and can't build up ground to keep pace with sea level rise. And deltas are places where sea level would be rising anyways, because deltas are a really big sediment load. And so they would actually induce subsidence and cause sea level to rise locally anyways. uh, And so without sediment to fill this in, sea level rise is even more intense in these coastal areas of Louisiana.
0: So wait, Tara, um, just mm-hmm. to clarify the like physics of what you're talking about here. Yes. So in a delta, because it's like a river is bringing down sediment and then depositing mm-hmm. it in the delta, is mm-hmm. that is that what you're talking that's about? With... Exactly. So, so that's it's uh, like like a mass
2: that's being moved to the delta. And so just like I was saying that ice sheets are punching down on the bread dough Earth, uh, deltas also punch down on oh. the yes is but there. usually what happens is that deltas kind of keep pace with that because oh. as um as sea level would rise there's more sediment that's filling it in
0: and that's and that, that would change the coastline right
2: mm-hmm, absolutely okay. yeah exactly gotcha
0: gotcha but there's like a natural sort of process to it um of yes
2: like,
0: the sediment mm-hmm. being filled in the sea level rising and the coastline sort of in a
2: way, when there's, when there's kind of a equilibrium, if you have um, sediment coming in at like the same pace over time, then you're going to be loading the crust and making space. They call this accommodation space for the sediment to fill in. But if you start having less sediment supply... Um, or sea level rises that offsets that balance, and so that's when coastlines will really start changing a lot. Or so, if, for example, if there's a lot of sediment, a delta will build out more. Um, or if there's less sediment, this is what is happening now that you'll the delta will start to kind of fall apart. Oh, I, I mean, see. it's not fall apart, but um, but it doesn't grow and it kind of starts drowning. Um, so sea level rise versus if you had more sediment supply that would be a sea level fall okay if that makes sense just because sorry so i think i didn't explain that really well but basically sea level is just the surface of the water minus the ground and if the ground is getting filled up by sediment then locally sea level is falling
0: oh gotcha okay mm-hmm. got it got it got it. Got it.
2: Um, But anyway, back to uh, your original point, Ambria. In a way, the fact that there is oil in this area is already causing sea level rise. So these companies are definitely delivering this doubly destructive impact, both through the toxicity of oil spills, uh, but also through exacerbated sea level rise.
0: Yeah, and I think there's also something. And this is a bit of a diversion from the sea level rise point that Tamara's been talking about, but um, you know, so many of the places that are um, the most vulnerable to climate change are places where there's already been severe resource extraction, um, mm-hmm. and I think that that uh, something that we see time and time again, whether you're talking about coastal areas or inland areas, I'm thinking of like um, you know, like the. Appalachian region it's been just sort of parts of it have been wiped out for coal Um, whether you're Mm -hmm. talking about like the outer reaches of the Amazon once these places have been sort of stripped of the natural resources that um, have made them profitable they're essentially abandoned by the capitalist class and in addition to not having um, sort of the natural barriers to uh you know, various sort of weather, Mm -hmm. climate catastrophes that roll in. um, Naturally, there then we've exacerbated the climate problems and there aren't resources to be, like, taking care of the people who are still there um, in these places that have had their resources ripped from them. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, what, Tara, you're talking about is just one example of,
1: like, how that works. Or at least, I mean, that's how it seems to me. Mm -hmm. yeah no I completely agree so the sea level is rising more in some places a lot of them very vulnerable places that have already been made vulnerable like Kellen was saying by um, having their environment uh, mined for resources Um, so the sea level is, is high in some places how severe We haven't really talked about this. How severe is the physical damage that climate change or rising sea levels has already caused? Is it a problem? Is it only a problem for the future? Has anybody suffered from this? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's definitely
2: a problem today. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a problem. And, um, and. So, there are a number of ways that climate change is causing damage around the world that I can't really speak to, but so I'm going to still focus on sea level. Uh, But so, one of the threats of sea level is rising sea level is the increased damage potential of storms. So, as sea level rises, storm surge levels also rise, and that means that flooding is more intense when storms hit. And in addition to that, as ocean temperatures rise, hurricane intensity is predicted to increase so that means that not only does climate change cause more flooding but it'll also cause more intense storms that cause the flooding
1: oh cool uh, so, that sounds good <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> um and so um so i think i mean you can never say well the. This- event is caused by climate change but i think in a way we're already seeing that i think we're seeing more intense hurricanes we're seeing more flood damage normal storms hit and um and i think that's what we're going to expect going forward is there's going to be more physical damage as storm surges get higher and tropical storms intensify
0: yeah. And this seems like a good point to really like fully transition into some of the social consequences um, of sea level rise. Uh, and Tamara, I know you were recently teaching a class that talked about some of the human costs behind climate change. And I think this gets to Ambria's question, like, um, I know y'all focused on a couple different communities and different parts of the globe that were facing some really devastating effects from these problems. And so I thought it would be cool to sort of revisit some of this stuff that you've taught about. Um, and so could you tell us a little bit about how like Pacific Islanders, um, Native Americans, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Sapelo <laughs> Islanders are experiencing yeah. climate change. <laughs>
2: yeah so so I was taing a sea level course that my advisor teaches, which mostly focuses on the physics of sea level change on a number of time scales from millions of years ago to today. So some of the things I was talking about earlier. Uh, but I was able to convince him to let me teach one class on the impact <laughs> of sea level on society, aka famous feminist approach to sea level rise <laughs> um, <laughs> we call it stealth feminism. <laughs> And (laughs) I had students uh, read three different papers. So one was a news article about how small island nation leaders are battling to negotiate for help mitigating the effects of sea level rise on their communities. And the central point of this article is that anthropogenic climate change is largely caused by industrialization, which small island nations basically played no role in yet are suffering some of the more drastic consequences. This ultimately ties into the history of colonization as these small island nations have little political power compared with nations who are massively involved in industrialization, which took part in tandem with taking over and colonizing such non-Western islands. Uh, And so another article um, that the, had the students read it was about the impact of climate change on two Native American communities in the U.S., one in Alaska and one in Louisiana. And we ultimately focused on the community in Louisiana as as this one dealt with uh, more specifically with Sea Level Rise. Uh, so this Native American community originally moved to this island, uh, which is Ile de jean shall sorry (laughs) as a refuge from european settlers who forced them from their original lands and as sea level rises the area of this island is getting smaller and smaller to the point that it will likely disappear uh, and storm surges are also getting higher and higher so uh, here sea level rise is exacerbated by coastal erosion as I mentioned earlier from gas companies that have built canals, pipelines, and also because of damming of the Mississippi. And so finally the last article the class read was about uh, the Sapelo Island in Georgia. Uh, so this island is largely inhabited by African Americans. Many of these inhabitants are descendants from slaves who were first brought to work on plantations on the island. And in this case, the effect of sea level rise on the community is largely related to the increase in nuisance flooding, uh, which uh, flood roads and and make it more and more difficult for people to access their property. And so sea level rise also changing saltwater content in tidal regions, causing changes in fishing practices, which hurts those that are relying on subsistence fishing.
1: So like in reading about the impact on Native communities in particular, I was struck by the complication of the answers that there could be to the kind of question you hear. Like, why don't they just move? Um, And I realized in reading about this that it goes beyond sort of, you know, a social-emotional attachment to land and tradition. Um, Although I do want to, like, note that those things are meaningful beyond measure. They they definitely are, but there seem to be more to it. Um, And I'm sure you can speak much better than I can to this. So I'll just pose the question itself to you. Why don't they just move? Uh, So I think
2: what's really interesting from these papers uh, is that it's clear that a lot of these communities that are suffering the biggest brunt of sea level rise didn't really just pick this place as their first choice to live. Uh, and for Native communities, more often than not, these communities were forcibly relocated to these lands. And it's clear that when white people that made those decisions um, moved them to that land, they knew that it wasn't the prime real estate. So um, so for one, it's it's not really their choice how they, they got to this area. Um, and um, for Native American communities that are working to relocate um, it's it's clear that there's just uh, a lack of support from government agencies, and, uh, and it's not clear what agency is really supposed to be in charge, and there's not a policy in place on how to deal with climate refugees within our own country. Uh, and so another issue that is somewhat related is, uh, is the gap between the science of sea level change and the experience of it? So in these papers, this concept that comes up a few different times is the idea of a quote "climate gap. And so this refers to the idea that there's some gap between scientists' understanding of sea level of sorry, of climate change or sea level change, and the way that humans actually experience. Uh, and in all of the communities that we've discussed so far, These people have experienced climate change far longer than scientists have described it to them. And this kind of knowledge from experience can greatly help the community adapt to its changing environment. And Native communities who have lived in these regions for thousands of years have developed such systems of knowledge. An issue for these communities now is that with current and historical legal sanctions from the U.S. government, It's limited, it's really limited the ability of these community members to rely on traditional knowledge to adapt to climate change. Uh, And from the other perspective, uh, kind of from, from my side, I think scientists have a lot to learn from these experiential knowledges. Native communities often have extremely detailed information of changes on their land through time, and this is the kind of rich data that could be so useful for the scientific community if scientists could recognize this knowledge that isn't produced by scientists as data. Uh, For example, a colleague of mine, Natalia Gomez, who's a professor at McGill, works with native people in subarctic Canada who have very precise information on how sea level has changed through time. And um, they can say, for example, You know, sea level used to be at this house and now it's at this house. Um, And uh, this, sorry, I know that didn't quite make sense, but they have very precise ideas and really good recording of when sea level was at certain levels. And this is the kind of data that helps inform our modeling of sea level change and therefore our understanding of past ice sheet changes.
0: Yeah. And at Tamara, I know that some of your work has brought in, like, um, again, I'm just thinking about some of the stuff that I've seen you give talks about, like um, the using um, both archaeology uh, as a as a tool to help figure out where ocean levels used to be and using um, sort of native taxonomies. Um, particularly in the Arctic or subarctic. I don't know the difference between the Arctic and subarctic. Please <laughs> don't cancel me. Um, and I
1: think one is slightly less Arctic than the other. <laughs> and I know that sounds silly, but I think that's actually the case. You know
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's just a little more south.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: perfect. Um, and I think this kind of goes to something that you were talking about, um, which is your feminist training, um, like, and, uh, you mentioned like the fact that bringing some of this stuff into the class that you were helping your professor, your your advisor teach, um, was an example of like bringing feminist practice to science. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you've sort of what feminist practice looks like in science and how you've brought it into your work and also how some of these ideas, not necessarily yours specifically, but... Um, how some of these ideas are received, or why you feel like there is sort of pushback in some parts of the scientific community to the uh, you know doing more mm-hmm. of this kind of people facing work.
2: Yeah, great question. I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> around that. Um, so, what, so the first the first question about what does it actually look like to practice to put them feminist thought into practice in science is, is something that I think about a lot and struggle with what that really looks like um, because I think that it kind of can come in at every single level of the scientific process um, from what ideas are valuable um, to so, you know, for example, Sci- some scientists might think some questions are really exciting and think questions that that serve, for example, serve marginalized communities that are impacted by sea level rise, less interesting to study. So kind of where value is put just in first deciding the research question. Uh, and then uh, so that's one one place where. Um, like thinking from a feminist perspective can can come in is in choosing the research question, but then also in practice, um, what, I, what I just described about um, this person who, who tries to think about how sea level change is affecting a Native community in Canada um, is, is not just coming in and saying, like, we're going to make these measurements, we don't care, uh, that this place is inconvenient for you. We're just gonna come in. We're gonna leave, um, and which is really how how most geology gets done. Uh, and instead, is thinking about well, what issues are this is this community facing, and and what kind of science would help it. So I think that in practice is is a way that would really transform the way science is done. Um, but then, I mean, I could really go on like every single level of the scientific process uh, could use a feminist intervention. Um, but uh, uh, what was the second part? There's uh,
0: You've talked a little bit. If there's anything you would want to elaborate on how you try to bring um, a sort of feminist lens to your work and then also why you think there's resistance to it in parts of the scientific community.
2: Yeah, uh, there's so much resistance to it uh, because ultimately it threatens the idea that the science that's being done isn't perfect, and and scientists have been trained to think that they're going through a you know they're following. Scientific process, which means that they're being completely objective. They're not bringing in values from their surrounding social setting. They're just coming in and objectively doing science. And the idea that um, that maybe the way you choose questions is weighted by your social values, um, are already threatens that that notion that that science is correct and objectively correct. Uh, and so, so I think, I, I think that's kind of what feels most threatening to a lot of scientists about, about asking these kind of questions saying, well, what would science look like if you looked at it from a marginalized perspective, could this science be better science and, and asking that there can be a better science is already threatening because um the way the science system works is is assuming that it's objective and and producing truths. Mm-hmm. So if it's not producing a truth that's objectively the truth, then it's not science anymore. And so so it kind of dismantles the whole structure. Um, and uh, so so I think that's ultimately why a lot of people don't like the idea that. Um, that science has, that's already invaded by social values, by social culture, and it's completely determined by who and whose culture is brought in to performing the science.
0: Yeah, that makes me think of, I mean, obviously, science in the most generic terms is not a, like, quote, unquote, Western discipline Um, science has been Mm -hmm. practiced in countless ways for all of human history but thinking Mm -hmm. about like academic science um it makes me that sort of what you were talking about with with scientists sort of I was thinking the visual I had when you were talking about um the ways that science can be done poorly geology for example can be done poorly it made me think about somebody literally like parachuting into a community literally dropping themselves down you know, taking their measurements, doing mm-hmm. their work, and then leaving. Mm-hmm. And you think about some of the critiques of um, anthropology, especially like, you know, um, anthropology of the, um, sort of western canon that tended to be outward facing exploring mm-hmm. minority communities um mm-hmm. and i know i'm not an anthropologist but a lot of work has been done with within the sort of academic discipline of anthropology trying to figure out um you know the ways that that there's their um social science can be done um that isn't inherently exploitative mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and sort of all of this stuff made me also think about last week's episode um we talked to uh two people working on the green a green new deal plan in australia and they (laughs) were really something they focused on a lot was the relationship between colonization and climate change and how important it is um to really center the experiences of um and the solutions from native communities in a place where there's like this long history of white supremacist colonial violence. And it, it seems like it, sort of in having this conversation with you that it's, it's evident that this sort of extractive, um, violent sort of colonialism is evident, not just in the way that like native communities have been dispossessed in the United mm-hmm. States or in Canada or in Australia, um, but also that there's that same sort of colonialist violence in the way that science is sometimes pursued.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and, um, and I think that's another place where there's a lot of resistance to that idea. Um, you know, scientists will say, okay, but anthropologists, yeah, they've been <laughs> exploitative, but that's because they study people, and we study rocks so people don't have anything to do with it um but obviously people live on rocks and (laughs) and they're they're entering when when geologists like you said kind of parachute in they're they're entering communities that already exist and um and so i would say that in a way uh yeah there's i think a really obvious parallel of how science is performed And how that mimics the same colonial practice of coming in, extracting, and then taking those resources and leaving. Um, And uh, in this case, the the resources aren't maybe aren't uh, some really valuable mineral, but instead it's it's kind of producing knowledge from this from the local community, often with Local communities really helping, and then taking that knowledge and and selling it for value in the academic world. So it's not it's not the same as some kind of physical good that you're moving around, but it's still um, kind of taking uh, taking and then producing a much higher value uh, that gets recognized back in their scientists'
1: country. Um, I would like, oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. I would like to recommend a book uh, that I'm being reminded of that I read in undergrad. And actually, for, for two years, um, we have been saying that we should make a big book list. And our listeners have been begging us to make a big list book list. And Mm -hmm. if we ever do that, um, (laughs) I'd put this book on it. It's a collection of essays called Feminism in Science. And one thing it talks about, you know, the essays have a lot of different arguments. Not every essay agrees with the other essays. But um, one thing that kind of blew my mind was standpoint theory, which is sort of like you were getting at earlier, Tamara, the idea that, you know, even the the most objective, white male scientist, neutral, cracker person um (laughs) it's coming from a place of a collection of social values and that has to be considered and um i think it's really threatening because it throws the whole idea of objectivity into Mm -hmm. question um because it kind of becomes like well how can anybody be objective um maybe we can take these dissenting opinions uh from someone else with a completely different standpoint and say that it's just as objective as this Mm -hmm. like um, you know, quintessential in our minds, like standard idea of who a scientist is. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh no. You know, then, then we're kind of throwing everything into disarray. Uh, Anyway, so I recommend that book. It's really good. It kind of blew my mind.
2: And, and the reason it's in disarray is because that standard scientist that you think of has power like there is power in saying that the knowledge you produce is the truth so if you throw that out you throw away the power that scientists have so i think like it's like that's the the ultimate threat is um if scientists can't produce truth then scientists don't have power
0: wow Tara, i gotta say we start. You started with blowing my mind, talking about <laughs> the different sea level rises, and then you ended with this literal truth bomb. So, are people? I mean, is this is this like a, um, you know, like a postmodernist truth doesn't exist type situation, or? Yeah.
2: Well, I think it. Well, so actually, so this is um, what Am- Am- Embryo was talking about. This idea of standpoint theory. Um, as as Ambria said, um, I, f- feminists that work on this often disagree about you know what uh, like what really counts as objectivity. But one of the ideas is that that comes from standpoint theory is that truth is a collection of experiences. Mm-hmm. That truth is when we look at the universe from lots of different angles. When we include be angled from the margins what it looks like from from um from social classes that are marginalized when we really weigh those opinions in so it's not just a singular opinion that all of those stories together are what constitute the truth um and and so i i kind of like that idea not that there's there's no truth (laughs) just that um, there are a lot of different angles on the truth and we're not going to have an understanding of the truth if we don't bring in those angles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I would echo that just not from any experience of doing science in any way, shape <laughs> or form, but uh, like no, nobody that I read in this collection of essays is like, forget about trying to get the right answer in science. It was more like our ability to do science well and you know, if there is any kind of objectivity, objectivity that can be chased, these things are being, um, negatively impacted by like a false sense of objectivity, um, that stems from like seeing the, the white man as someone neutral, who is more inherently objective than, um, other identities.
0: Yeah. The, the classic, um, default race is white default gender is, is male. Um, anything else is an aberration and thus incorporates bias. Um,
1: yeah. Proud to be an aberration,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but it, uh, yeah, it's easy. It's easy to sort of make yourself the default when you're, you know, the one that's setting up the, uh, the entire schema. Um mm-hmm. so Tamara, we're we're running up on probably the, you know, we're getting close to the end of our time. Um mm-hmm. I guess one of the things that I would wanna maybe end on, and Ambria may have some, you know, other final questions too or final thoughts, is like, do you see as we're sort of careening towards environmental collapse, um as, as it feels like things are really accelerating in a, a, a not positive way, do you think that science is going to change? Like, do you think that that people are going to move towards a, sort of more valuing of these types of perspectives that,
1: you know, mm-hmm.
0: as the climate deteriorates it's going to be impossible for us to ignore or the scientific community to ignore these perspectives or is this going to be mm-hmm. sort of what we talk about like a the academic version of eco-fascism where we just raise the walls um, and say you know it's too bad the people that are on the outside um, mm-hmm. but we can't let them in you have any um, thoughts any trends yeah that you're seeing?
2: My, my answer isn't super optimistic <laughs> I think that um more and more people will find questions of climate change very pressing. Mm-hmm. And and scientists are already, that kind of is the trendy topic. Like in our in in my field, sometimes people that study the geologic past get annoyed at people that study modern sea level rise because their papers get published in more prestigious journals. Because people <laughs> care about how climate is changing. So Um, So scientists do care about those questions, but the way they study it Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. for their, for themselves in a way, like, uh, I think you're going to see people making action in Boston and New York, like those are places that are affected by sea level rise too. All of the US East Coast is is experiencing more than the average sea level rise, And, and New York and Boston, those are wealthy cities that are really aware of it and they actually are taking note and, and taking it very seriously. Um, do I think scientists are going to prioritize communities that don't have economic or political power? I don't see when they're gonna decide
0: to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. ambria any final <sighs> okay.
1: That's really cool. Thanks for coming on, Tamara. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a real bummer, camera. Okay, all right. <laughs>
0: last, last. Why don't we? If you, um, if there are people who want to go into science, you know, who are listening to this, or people who are interested in this kind of thing, like, what direction would you point people who are interested in sea level rise or interested in working on climate or geology and want to take into account like the social realities of of the world that they're they're studying.
2: Oh, I would recommend that they read some feminist literature.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> For so I guess thinking about like any anything that's kind of post-colonial feminist studies that uh, I feel like that's the perspective that would be really interesting to mesh with uh sea level or climate science um, and um yeah actually there's a book that's called sciences from below um i think it's by sandra harding hopefully i get that right uh and and so it's kind of it's thinking about um like what would science look like if it was coming from issues in marginalized communities and actually there's just not a lot of work that's thought about that for sea level rise um so be really excited for people that get excited about those questions and i'd love it if they talk to me about it too
0: Yay. Yeah, talk to Tamara. Um, yeah, I'm. I know. I'm really excited about the work that you're doing. Um, we only sort of scratched the surface today, but to continue to brag on my dear friend, um, this is not just a guest. I should, maybe clarify this. Is not, <laughs> it's not a person I'm stalking. <laughs> That I was on podcast. What? she came room, to my like, thesis defense now. and sat oh. in the first row um
1: wait kellen are you like friends with Tamara? <laughs> <laughs> i actually didn't know that i thought oh, yeah, not sorry. all of our guests are like personal friends so no
0: i do you know i i do um try to surround myself with people who are like wonderful in a variety of ways but um, tamar is like not only maybe the smartest person I know, um, she's also put together Mm -hmm. some really, really incredible work, um, the way that Tamara brings, like, feminist theory to, um, all the stuff that she does is really impressive, I know that you're, are frequently hesitant to go outside the specifics of, like, your, what you think of as your expertise, but, um, she's done some really cool work about the ways that, like the history of the the field of geology the way that it's rooted and engendered and colonial violence like geology itself um as a practice is is based in these sorts of very significant forms of exploitation and um, mm-hmm. anyway it's just it's been really great to get to have you on and and talk about some of your science work and also talk about the stuff that you're really passionate about that doesn't always make it into your academic papers (laughs) so thank you and yes Tamara is my friend Uh I'm glad to establish that at the end of this podcast after you seem like a real weirdo who shows up to all the stuff that you
1: do. Well, the earth is dying, but for now we still have friendship. It's true. Yeah.
0: Um, Well, Tamara, thank you so much for coming on. Oh,
1: thank you so much for inviting me.
2: This was so fun.
0: Yay. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back next summer. All right, well, that was an awesome interview. Um, thanks again to our guest, Tamara Pico. She actually has a piece coming out. I think it, by the time that this episode drops, it unless it's a very early Patreon, it will be out. You can find it online at, on, at the Scientific American. It's called 150 Years Later, Revisiting the Legacy of John Wesley Powell. It will be hot off the presses this week. And it's Tamara's work on um, the sort of father of geology, This guy named John Wesley Powell, um, who it turns out uh, was a wild racist and sort of in addition to being a quote unquote explorer of the American West, was also a cataloger of um, Native American cultures. And it's a really interesting look into the way that early anthropology and um, ethnic studies, if you will, and geology and other sort of forms of science were all entangled together um, at their birth. So, uh, definitely check that out.
1: Wow. Kellen, uh, what a surprise that the father of geology actually turned out, uh, to be problematic. Um,
0: <laughs> just like so, most fathers, you know?
1: Yeah. Problematic dad. So, um, recovering from the shock right now that, um, that <laughs> this man was a racist and a horrible person. Um, you can go online and follow us on Twitter. We're really funny. Kellen does a lot of stuff on our Twitter at season of the B. Um, you can also look at our website, www.seasonofthebee.com. Um, one day we might put a list of books there. Uh, so you should go check it out just in case. Just
0: keep updating. It'll be there eventually.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just get on there and refresh for the next <laughs> few years of your life. <laughs> um and you can also follow us on instagram at season of the It's the same uh and on facebook uh i think it actually says season of the bitch on there which has created problems for us advertising uh but yeah we don't have to get into that um (laughs) and yeah you can always send us an email at season of the bee at gmail.com uh we love to hear from people just like what you thought about the episodes or if you have some ideas about what we should cover or if you're an expert in something and you want to come on the show, um, just let us know. We'll think about it. <laughs> Anything else to add, Kellen, or did no, I cover I it? I think
0: that's about it.
1: It was nice to do an episode with you today. It
0: was great to do an episode
1: with you, Andrea. Oh, okay. All, right. All right. Well, love you. Bye. Love you.
0: bitch.